Federal Republic of Nigeria, which is typically called just Nigeria, is a country on the western coast of the African continent, bordered by Benin to the west, Niger to the north, Chad to the northeast, and Cameroon to the east. Its coastline opens into the Gulf of Guinea, and the region has been occupied for at least 4,000 years, since around 2000 BC. And during that time, quite a few major pre-colonial ethnic groups and empires were anchored in what is today Nigeria, including the Igbo, the Yoruba, the Benin, the Kenem-Bornu, and the Shokoto Caliphate. The British conquered and colonized much of West Africa during the period of European expansion into the region, at first selling their African captives as slaves, and then when the slave trade was outlawed by the British in 1807. The area was used as a primarily agricultural colony, with regional chiefdom-based governments established by the British in an attempt to keep things orderly, and the wealth flowing back to England. And though there were several significant armed conflicts with local opposition groups into the early 20th century, the British were able to get their claim on Western Africa formalized with their European colonialist peers in the late 19th century, and thus were in a pretty good spot to keep the locals subjugated and agriculturally productive. On January 1st, 1914, the British merged what were called the Southern Nigeria Protectorate and the Northern Nigeria Protectorate into a single region called the Colony and Protectorate of Nigeria. Though the northern and southern regional distinctions remained in place for administrative purposes, and culturally, the two were starkly divided, in part because the southern region was more coastal, and as a result had more exposure to European trade and culture, and in part because the north was allowed to continue adhering to Islamic traditions, while the south had quite a few Christian schools established by missionaries. Nigeria achieved independence from the British in late 1960, and became a federal republic in 1963. In 1966, a coup launched by soldiers knocked supposedly corrupt Nigerian leaders out of power, but those who achieved the coup then failed to establish a central government, which led to military control of the country. A counter-coup that same year put a different military leader at the head of government, and tensions between northern and southern portions of the country rose substantially during this period, as the turmoil was largely the result of mistrust between folks from groups dominant in one region against the other. In 1967, the government of the eastern region of Nigeria declared independence from the rest of the country, which resulted in what is today known as the Nigerian Civil War a 30-month conflict that ended in 1970, with 1 to 3 million Nigerians estimated to have been killed over the course of the war, and a double handful of outside nations using the conflict as a proxy war in support of their more macro-level ambitions. In particular, the British and the Soviet Union supported the Nigerian central government, while Israel and France supported the separatists. Post-Civil War, Nigeria joined the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, which had been founded a decade earlier and which significantly contributed to the global oil boom of the 1970s, 
which benefited the Nigerian government, and which tied regional governments to the flow of money from that central government's oil wealth, but which didn't do a whole lot to reinforce the country's overall wealth or level of infrastructure. The oil money mostly bought loyalty and pooled at the top, as Nigeria became more and more of a petrostate, almost completely dependent on oil wealth because of the lack of substantial investment in most other industries. There was another coup attempt in 1976, but although it succeeded in killing the leader of the country, who himself had achieved power through a coup, the new coup leaders were unable to grab the reins of power in the aftermath of that assassination, and the existing power structure prevailed, though these events led to some changes in the power structure up top, resulting a few years later in the formation of the Second Nigerian Republic, a new government that did away with military rule and introduced an American-style presidential system, complete with a constitution, political parties, and the peaceful transfer of power between leaders after elections. This system lasted all of four years, until New Year's Eve of 1983, when the military, citing corruption within the government and untrustworthy election results, overthrew the government and took over once more. This military leadership was then overthrown themselves in another coup in 1985, and the leader who took power after that coup established the Nigerian Political Bureau in 1986, which was tasked with figuring out how to transition to a third Nigerian republic, which would reintroduce political parties and voting and the peaceful transfer of power, but hopefully better and in a less questionable and overthrowable way than the last time around. There was another coup attempt in 1990, but it failed. It did, however, delay the return to democratic rule, pushing the planned election back from 1992 to 1993. In 93, the leader of the Social Democratic Party won a serious majority over the opposing National Republican Convention Party, but the military leader annulled the election results, which led to massive civilian protests. The whole country was more or less shut down to any activity except protesting and trying to stifle protests for weeks on end. The military leadership eventually gave in and said that they would keep their promise to step down, allowing the rightfully elected party to take over, but they installed an interim leader in the meantime during the transition phase, and that leader was overthrown in another military coup the same year he was installed, 1993. The new military leader ransacked government coffers for several years until he died in 1998, having survived till that point by moving huge chunks of Nigeria's wealth to offshore accounts that he controlled, and then bribing, arresting, and threatening generals and politicians who might have otherwise launched their own coups against him. His successor in the military leadership adopted a new constitution in mid-1999, and that culminated in the creation of the Fourth Nigerian Republic, which is the current government of Nigeria, and which has multiple political parties, an American-style presidential system, and an election system that, although far from perfect, and still rife with accusations of mismanagement and abuse, is considered to be quite a bit fairer and more legitimate than all the attempts that have been made previously. As of the day I'm recording this in mid-November 2020, the president of Nigeria is Muhammadu Buhari, and he's been the president since he was elected in 2015. 
He's a retired general, and he was one of the former military heads of state back in 1983 to 1985. He took power back then as a result of that 1983 coup, though he has since said that while he cannot change the past, he is now a converted Democrat, meaning someone who is in favor of the democratic process, rather than the taking power through a coup process, which he previously favored. The Nigeria over which he governs is a very different place from what it was even in fairly recent history, and that's true not just of the government, but also the demographics and economics in the region. The population of Nigeria is around 207 million people, which makes it the seventh most populous nation in the world, after China, India, the United States, Indonesia, Pakistan, and Brazil. And almost half of the population is under 18 years old, making it the third youngest country in the world, after only India and China. Nigeria has one of the highest population growth rates in the world as of 2020, increasing at something like 3% a year, depending on where you get your data and how you choose to measure such things. Some projections have Nigeria growing faster than any other country on the planet, potentially doubling their population to over 400 million people by 2050, which would be an absolutely staggering number for a country a little over twice the size of California geographically. Today, Nigeria is already one of the most densely populated countries in Africa, and it has the largest population of all African nations as well. They also have the largest economy in Africa, and the 24th largest economy in the world, though the gross national income per capita, a rough estimate of how much money an average citizen brings home each year, is between $1,026 and $3,986. So Nigeria is still classified as a lower middle-income economy, according to World Bank international standards for such things. That said, Nigeria is also considered to be one of the emerging next-step global giant economies due to local trade and investment policies, macroeconomic stability, political maturity, and the quality of education in the region. So although there are still quite a few hurdles to leap, Nigeria is already a hugely competitive country, both regionally and internationally, and looks to be even more so in the coming decades, if current trends continue. What I'd like to talk about today is a wave of protests that have been erupting around Nigeria, what instigated these protests, and what they might mean for the country's future. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, Why Nigeria is Now Erupting. This piece, which was published at the end of October 2020, outlines a series of protests that have been happening across Nigeria for weeks related to, in the big picture, corruption and what is seen as a lack of accountability within the government, but which in the micro focuses on a specific government-connected group called the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, or SARS. SARS, as the name implies, was a special unit within the Nigerian police force that was created in 1992 to specialize in dealing with issues related to robberies, kidnappings, motor vehicle thefts, and cattle rustling, 
meaning cattle stealing, alongside all kinds of gun-related crimes that the normal police were having trouble coping with. The circumstances surrounding the creation of this force are fairly unusual. Back in 1992, a Nigerian army colonel was killed by police officers at a checkpoint in Lagos, the largest city in Nigeria, and three police officers were arrested. Soldiers from the army, seeking revenge for this killing, then started hunting the police. So police officers went into hiding, with some quitting and some just fleeing checkpoints and security areas and banks. So all these places where you would typically find police trying to keep crimes from being committed and providing security were suddenly without any police, because soldiers from the army were trying to find them and get revenge. The then-police commissioner formed a secret police force, 15 strong, a few weeks later, when crime had reached a fever pitch due to the lack of any law enforcement on the streets, again due to the fact that soldiers were still on the lookout for cops to punish and or kill. This secret police force eventually stepped into a public role once peace was reestablished between the army and law enforcement, and the SARS designation came to represent a particular type of policing, namely a sort of under-the-radar, pseudo-black ops-style approach to detaining, investigating, and prosecuting violent criminals, and anyone involved in kidnappings, cattle rustlings, and armed robberies. In practice, this often meant that people would end up dead if they were even suspected of these sorts of crimes, their bodies showing up surreptitiously at morgues or floating in bodies of water. Or in some cases, it meant merely harassing, abusing, and in some cases brutally torturing or even raping innocent people, to the point where, in 2010, Amnesty International sued the Nigerian police force over this group's actions, And that same year, the online news agency Sahara Reporters published a piece about how the SARS unit had made a profit of around $60 million by setting up roadblocks and engaging in extortion rackets, all within just 18 months. In 2015, it was announced that the then-Inspector General of Police would split the SARS unit into an operational unit and a separate investigative unit in an attempt to limit the potential for human rights abuses. But such abuses continued, with Amnesty International publishing a report in 2016 about the many instances of torture and detainment without trial they had evidence of. In 2017, an advocacy campaign called End SARS was started on social media, and people around Nigeria shared their personal experiences with this group the members of which didn't wear uniforms and traveled in unmarked vehicles, and which often seemed to get away with pretty much anything, including murders and daylight robberies. The stories painted a picture of a group that engaged in government-mandated vigilante patterns of behavior that were also very self-serving and self-enriching. There were street protests later that year, but the police pushed back, calling the protesters criminals and saying that they should come forward, make themselves known, so that the SARS group could investigate them. Eventually, the Nigerian Senate backed an effort to disband this unit, and in mid-2018, the acting president of Nigeria ordered an overhaul of the group, along with an independent investigation of their many reported human rights violations. In early 2019, 
The SARS group was decentralized, with leaders in different regions who would be held responsible for their local SARS group's actions. Whereas previously, the whole group was based out of a headquarters in Abuja. But the abuses continued, and in October of 2020, a SARS officer shot a young man in front of a hotel in Ugeli. And the video of this shooting spread across social media, reigniting the end SARS campaign from a few years earlier. Protesters took to the streets in Abuja, and they were beaten and eventually chased off by federal police officers, though they later returned and made it all the way to the police force headquarters. The international press captured and broadcast footage of the police tear-gassing, water-cannoning, and shooting live rounds, real bullets, at protesters over the next few days. And this led to even more interest in the protests, culminating with a police station in southwestern Nigeria being attacked by angry protesters who had heard about the death of a protester a few days prior. In Lagos, protesters marched to and slept outside the State House of Assembly, and the following day, an emergency session was held, with some protesters invited inside to watch the proceedings on behalf of their fellow protesters. On October 11th, just a few days after those initial protests started in response to that shooting, the Inspector General of Police announced that they would disband SARS and start up a new tactical team to replace it sometime soon. Protesters continued to march, though, citing the fact that the government had claimed that they would disband SARS before, but never followed through. And the newly announced tactical group, SWAT, looked like it would probably be made up of reassigned SARS officers, basically just a rebranding and reshuffling effort, which further inflamed the protests. On October 12th, the governor of Rivers State, one of the 36 states of Nigeria, banned protesting in the area. And this, of course, led to more protests, both there and elsewhere in the country. Protests and rhetoric from both sides escalated in the following days with pro-SARS counter-protesters, at times attacking anti-SARS protesters with knives and clubs, while the government continued to claim it had given the protesters what they wanted so they should all just go home. During this same period, incriminating videos of government officials laughing at the protesters and their concerns were spread around the internet, some of them seemingly legitimate, and some of them almost certainly doctored and put into a false context. On October 20th, the governor of Lagos State announced a 24-hour curfew statewide. Protesters held their position at a major toll gate, the Leki Toll Gate, and armed Nigerian army soldiers arrived at the protest and began to fire on the, until that moment, peaceful and unarmed protesters. At least several dozen people were injured, and though the government says only two people were killed, protest-aligned groups claim far more than that. Amnesty International, for instance, reported that at least a dozen protesters were killed at this single event. The governor of Lagos, for his part, later called this report, quote, fake news, end quote. After that shooting, which became known as the Lekki Massacre, more army-instigated shootings occurred, and some protesters countered by setting government buildings and vehicles on fire. At least 17 police stations were destroyed in Lagos alone. Police then upped their level of violence, the gloves seeming to have come off, resulting in a lot more injuries and several more reported deaths amongst the protesters. 
Unmarked, ununiformed groups of armed men have also been harassing and attacking both sides, raiding and looting homes and setting fire to buildings, possibly taking advantage of the chaos to enrich themselves, and possibly representing a fringe element of one or both sides of this conflict. This round of protests escalated so quickly, in part because of Nigeria's rapidly expanding and enriching economy and a very well-connected population, nearly half of which is under 18 years old. And according to a 2020 report by Amnesty International, the majority of abuses by SARS officers have been conducted against young Nigerian men aged 18 to 25, young men who have little recourse and who can thus be more easily pushed around. That's a very large cadre of people who are likely potential victims of this group. And most of the people who fall into this category are highly active on social media. Amplifying such messages are celebrities and other notable people within Nigeria, alongside folks born in Nigeria, but who are now living elsewhere. The Nigerian diaspora is large and often quite engaged, and in this case, they began supporting the end SARS cause and amplifying protesters' messages in other countries almost immediately which helped increase the reach of this particular round of protests, but also blended it with other anti-corruption and, at times, anti-police messages in their own current home countries. Of course, these protests are also representative of something larger. They're protests about the murder of the young man in front of that hotel, and of other specific abuses perpetrated by SARS officers, but they're also aimed at corruption and abuse throughout the Nigerian government and economic system. This is a country that is growing fast and enriching quickly, and it has a whole lot going for it in terms of next steps, but that systemic fragility that seems to have been a part of the country's infrastructure since at least as far back as the period of British rule doesn't seem to have gone away, as evidenced, perhaps, by the consistent sequence of military coups and the seeming inability, or lack of desire, to get rid of this overtly corrupt, self-enriching shadow police force that has operated with a de facto license to kill and rob and torture and rape as they please for decades. A Pew Research survey conducted back in early 2019 indicated that only 39% of Nigerians were satisfied with how democracy works in their country and 60% said that they were not satisfied, which is actually a slight improvement over where things stood back in 2013, when 72% of people reported that they were unhappy with the then-status quo. But it's still far from ideal, and far from what you would expect in a well-functioning democratic system, especially one that has as much to look forward to, and which has been doing as well as Nigeria has. It's also important to note here that Nigeria is made up of over 300 different ethnic groups, with the Igbo being the most dominant in the southeast, the Yoruba being the most dominant in the southwest, and the Hausa being the most dominant in the northern part of the country. The historic north-south divide is also still an influence on cultural and political leanings, with predominantly Muslim groups in the north and predominantly Christian groups in the south holding very different views on some vital subjects, including the government and its behavior. The Pew Research data I cited a moment ago can be divided out into Christian and Muslim respondents 
And if you look at those numbers, only 16% of Christian Nigerians are satisfied with the democratic system that they've got in the country right now, while 62% of Muslims are satisfied with it. And for context, the current leadership of the country primarily hails from the Muslim demographic and Muslim-dominated parts of the country. We can see similar divides in protest participation, with the majority of pro-government counter-protesters coming from the north, the primarily Muslim part of the country, and the majority of anti-government protesters hailing from the Christian-dominant south, none of which says anything about the religions or ethnic groups themselves inherently, but rather indicates that some groups might have more representation at certain levels of the national hierarchy at the moment. And it's possible that a recalibration of this power structure to make it more broadly equitable could ameliorate some of the issues that are manifesting as corruption and various sorts of governmental and economic vulnerability today. That said, that these protests are happening at all is not nothing. This is a country whose attitude toward politics was described by the well-known Nigerian musician Felakuti as, quote, suffering and smiling, end quote. In essence, there was systemic corruption and oppression, and you found a way to deal with it while wearing a smile on your face, because the military, which ruled everything, would crush you without even noticing if you didn't toe the line and just accept it. But today, after decades of growth and various sorts of success, and at a moment in which Nigeria is primed to take a larger role on the continental and global stage, these protests are happening. And even if they're more diffuse, now, post Lekki Massacre, moving partially online and happening on a smaller scale in more areas much of the time, that speaks volumes about the potential to move in a positive direction with this aspect of the government and culture in the coming years. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Parable of the Sower by Octavia E. Butler. This is the first book of a short series. I think there's only two books in the series. I've only read two, at least. And it takes place in a collapsing America. The United States and the world to a certain degree, but the United States in particular, collapsing as a consequence of accelerating climate change and dramatically increased wealth inequality, and the slow creep of corporations and what we might call megacorporations taking over. And the main protagonist is a young woman who is hyper-empathetic in that she experiences what other people experience if she sees or otherwise perceives them experiencing something, and who, as a consequence of a series of events, has to leave the gated community where she grew up, which was relatively well-protected compared to the rest of the area where she grew up, and who then, while on the road, begins to fulfill a lifelong plan to start a sort of secular religion predicated on the idea that God is change. Now, I don't want to say too much more than that. That already gives away a decent amount, but I feel like that sets the tone pretty well, so you can see if you'll be interested or not interested in this type of book. It is definitely not a feel-good book, but it is incredibly interesting. It's got some very good philosophy and thinking behind it. It's also just very well-written and has some incredibly compelling characters in it. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, 
consider picking up a copy of Parable of the Sower by Octavia E. Butler. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcripts for this episode and every episode of the show at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. (music) 